you know, I'm always thankful to be back here with you on Sunday mornings. It, it reminded me last night, my daughter is, my, my wife and two daughters and future son-in-law are in Tampa this morning. They, I was with them yesterday, and I'm going back this afternoon. It always reminds me, though, when in this situations like that, I drove back last night, and I'm so thankful, always so thankful to be back here with you on Sunday mornings. I, I hope that you enjoy now being together. That's, that's having fellowship with the saints, singing with the saints, being together. I've often said that the gathering of the saints is a glimpse, just a small glimpse, a small taste of worship in heaven. Now, I don't believe, I don't believe that heaven will be some uh, unending worship service, but I do believe there will be unending worship. I do believe that. Uh, we will enjoy an eternal and deepening relationship with our, with our Maker. I mean, that is, I, I believe that. I love the words of the Apostle John in Revelation 21. He says in Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people. And God Himself will be among them, and He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death, and no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. You see, God will, as I prayed earlier, God will remove the curse. Now, he will dwell eternally with His people. Heaven will come down to earth. And there will no longer be any tears of sadness. We will no longer experience death or mourning or crying or pain. Can you imagine? Can you imagine just for a moment dwelling with God in the heavenly city? In Revelation 21, 27, John tells us that in that city, there will be nothing defiled. There will be no one who practices abomination or lying. And no one who, who comes into it doing those things, but only those whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life. As I read those words, I wonder, and I ask, are you a citizen of the New Jerusalem? I'm reminded of the word, words of the Apostle Paul who declares that as Christians, if those who know the Lord, our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you waiting for the arrival of your Savior from heaven? Are you looking forward with anticipation? Are you... Do you understand that He has promised to transform the body of our humble state into conformity with His glory, the body of His glory? What an amazing thought, especially those of you who are struggling with health, right? One day, He's going to give you a new glorified body. He'll give me a new heart. I mean, He's already given me a new heart, but He'll give me a new physical one. In other words, he'll take our present bodies which are perishing and change them in the twinkling of an eye from, in, from corruptible to incorruptible. We will be transformed and given a new body like our Lord's after his resurrection. We will be completely redesigned and we will be fitted for a new home in heaven. Oh, that we would trust the promises of God. Do you know what else won't be needed anymore? This is pertinent to this week. Revival. You ever thought about that? Won't need any more revival. Because we'll always love and worship Him. You know that I wanted to mention 
before we get into the text, I want to address the happenings at Asbury College. If you've heard the, uh, what's going on there, if you've not heard, the chapel service, which began Wednesday, February 8th, has, has continued for well over a week. I'm not sure. Are they still going? Do you know if they're still going? Yeah. In 1970, there was a similar 10-day revival at the same college. And many had prayed for that to happen again. According to, to one commentator, he says there are no high-profile leaders, there's no programmatic stat- strategies, there's no multimedia props, just students crying out to God with devotion, humility, and repentance. And now, I don't know about you, but I've prayed for true revival among God's people for many years. I pray that there would be revival. And as, you, as we look across this culture, I mean, we see Romans 1 playing out on a daily basis. Our culture does not acknowledge God. So God has given them over to, a, you know, Romans 1, given them over to an unfit mind to do the things which aren't proper. I mean, they, He's given them over, given the culture over to those things. And if there's a time for revival, it's now. But we should, we should be fervently praying for God to bring revival. But I mean, let me give you a quote by Charles Spurgeon that I think should be the Christian attitude toward revival. He says this, Oh, that God would give us life. The church wants fresh revivals. Oh, for the, for the days of Cambuslane, I think it's a place in Scotland, I think, that he's talking about where there was a, a revival, but uh, where, when Whitfield preached with power. Oh, for the days when in this place hundreds were converted sometimes under Whit- Whitfield's sermons. It has been known that 2,000 credible cases of conversions have happened under one solitary discourse. Oh, for the age when eyes should be strained and ears should be ready to receive the Word of God, and when men should drink in the Word of, word of life as it is indeed the very water of life, which God gives to dying so- souls. Oh, for the age of deep feeling, the age of deep, thoroughgoing earnestness. Let us ask God for it. Let us plead with him for it. Perhaps he has the man or, or the men somewhere who will shake the world yet. Perhaps even now he's about to pour forth his mighty influence upon men, when, which shall make the church as wonderful in this age as it has ever been in any age that has passed. God grant it for Christ's sake. Amen. Beloved, we should long for revival. But we need to ask a few questions about it, though. See, what is revival? How does it start? How do we know it's legitimate? Well, let me give you this. I think 2 Chronicles 7.14 is instructive. Whether what's going on at Asbury College is revival or not, I think we need to look to the Word of God. And 2 Chronicles 7.14 is, is very instructive. In this context, uh, he is, this is speaking of Israel, but is, I think, applicable to the church. Second Chronicles, Chronicles 7, 14. My people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways. Then I will listen from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Church, I'm not sure what's happening, as I said, at Asbury College. Only time will tell. But I do know this. Revival can only come from God's people humbling themselves in prayer and seeking God's face in repentance. If we do those things, God promises that He will listen. 
And He will forgive our sins and He will heal our land. The question is, is are we going to seek Him in that way? Will God's people seek Him in true humility? You see, true revival starts in the hearts of God's people and spreads like wildfire among the churches. May we humble ourselves and may we pray and may we seek the Lord's face and may we turn from our evil ways. The Lord has promised to to listen. The Lord has promised to forgive and He's promised to heal. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning as we approach this text. Lord, I do pray we don't know what your plan is in terms of I mean, we do know ultimately, but we don't know what's going to happen from one day to the next. Lord, I pray that you would use us. I pray that you would revive men's hearts and that you would even use this little church, Grace Bible Church, to preach your gospel so that others would come to know you. Father, I pray that you would use this church in a mighty way or in a small way. It's your will. It's your choice. May we glorify you no matter what. In Christ's name, amen. So, what image do you see in your mind's eye when you think of Satan? When I was young, my mother had a friend who would tell, my, tell me that the devil was going to stick me in the rear with a pitchfork if I kept acting up. I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that. If you knew me back then, you'd know that I was full of mischief. I was full of, of uh, well, I was full of a lot of things. If anybody was going to get stuck with a pitchfork, it would have been me. But in all seriousness, when you think of Satan, when you think of the devil, you may have a picture of a red being with horns and a cape and a pitchfork, right? It's a common cultural this, this depiction of, of the devil, of Satan. A couple of weeks ago, two performers, if you, can tell, if you could call them that, put on an act at the Grammy Awards. They used the traditional depiction of satanic forces by wearing all red outfits and using fire in the background as they they performed, again, if you could call it that. I don't recommend watching that abomination, but it does give an example of how modern media continues to depict the devil or satanic things. You could say that they glorify him, or at least they glorify what he stands for. Now, many people, though, deny that he even exists. exists. They believe that, that he is a, a medieval fabrication. They deny his existence because they want to deny the judgment of God, do they not? They, you, we need to turn to Scripture, though, to get a better understanding of Satan. In 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, the Apostle Paul teaches that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And no wonder, Paul says, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. When he appeared in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, it's safe to say that his evil could not have been seen with the naked eye or even sensed necessarily. In Genesis 3.1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which Yahweh God had made. It's interesting. There's an old Twilight Zone episode from 1960 that I believe illustrates Satan's craftiness. 
in that episode, an American on a walking trip through Central Europe gets caught in a raging storm. Staggering through the blinding rain, he sees an imposing medieval castle. It's a monastery full of a brother, for a brotherhood of monks. Now, the reclusive monks reluctantly take him in, and later that night, the American discovers a cell. The cell has a, a man locked inside, and there's an ancient wooden staff that bolts the door. The prisoner claims that he is being held by the insane head monk, Brother Jerome. He pleads for the American to release him. The prisoner's kind face and gentle voice win one over the American. So he confronts Brother Jerome, who declares that the prisoner is Satan, none other than Satan, the father of lies. He is held captive by the staff of truth, the one barrier that he cannot pass. Now this explanation actually convinces the American not that he was Satan, but that Jerome was indeed mad. And as soon as he got the chance, he released the prisoner, who immediately transformed into a hideous horned demon and vanishes in a puff of smoke. The stunned American was horrified. He he was horrified by what he had done. And, And Jerome actually responded to him sympathetically, I'm sorry for you, my son. All your life you will remember this night in whom you have turned loose upon the world. I didn't believe you, the American replied. I saw him, but I didn't recognize him. To which Jerome responded, that is man's weakness and Satan's strength. Church, man's weakness is that we don't recognize Satan for who he truly is. That's the reason why we turned him into a caricature. We made him into a grotesque imitation that completely misrepresents his true nature. Well, the Bible presents him in a completely different light than we see in popular culture. In our text today, Matthew 4, 1-11, we'll try to gain a better understanding of the one Jesus says was a murderer and a liar from the beginning. Let's read the text. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1-11, and jump into our study the King and His glory. Starting in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after He had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, He then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to Him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But He answered and said, It is written... Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from or proceeds out of the mouth of God. And the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him on a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Now, you may recall from our study that Matthew has a critical theme that we must keep in mind as we interpret his gospel. 
He presents Jesus as the king. Everything he wrote focuses on Jesus as the true king, Israel's Messiah. In chapter 1, Matthew started by recounting Jesus' royal genealogy. He proved that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. He is the virgin-born son of Joseph and Mary and the only one who can be called the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited Redeemer. Also in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew went through great pains to prove that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. In Matthew chapter 2, Matthew tells of the royal visit of the Magi from the east who honored Jesus as the true king. They had been anticipating the Jewish Messiah from the time of Daniel. They saw his star and they came to worship Jesus. When these men visited, the false and incredibly wicked king of Israel, King Herod, became very agitated by the threat that Jesus posed to his power. So he tried to trick the Magi into giving him Jesus' location, but they avoided him by leaving another way. You might recall that Herod was so enraged that he slaughtered many boys trying to eliminate the threat from Jesus. But Joseph and Mary had fled into Egypt with Jesus and, and waited until Herod's death. After that, they returned and settled in Nazareth until the time came for Jesus' ministry to begin. Now, in the last few sermons, we've studied the life and ministry of John the Baptist, who is called the forerunner of the Messiah. And last time, the very last time I preached out of Matthew two weeks ago, uh, we saw the king's coronation. He, we saw his baptism. We, saw the, we witnessed his anointing by the Holy Spirit, at least in the Word of God we witnessed it. And we saw the Word of the Father who pronounced, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It is a, a mountain peak in the text up until this point. Now, these came together as Jesus was crowned as the new or as the true king, the son of the living God. He was anointed to begin his ministry of saving work. Now, in Matthew 4 1, coming on the heels of his heavenly coronation, Matthew presents Jesus as, as, presents him as the tested and proven king. Not just the king but as the tested and proven king by supplying six distinctives of his testing. His time of temptation first transpires in a distinct location. That's one distinctive. The second is it's tied with an old enemy. The third is it told of a new Adam. The fourth is it tested a unique title. And the fifth is it took into account three difficult challenges. And sixth, it takes or is a tale is a tale of an amazing of an amazing triumph. Now let's look at the first three distinctives today. With that, let's study the first of the six distinctions. His time of temptation transferred transpired, that is, in a distinct location. Look at your text in verse one. And Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, notice that Matthew uses a Greek word translated then. Evidently, the temptations that we're going to see in Matthew 4 occurred just after Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3, 13-17. Mark 1:12, in Mark 1:12, Mark tells us that immediately, immediately the Spirit drove him to go out into the wilderness. The Spirit sent Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days just after John had baptized him. 
just after he had been pronounced by the Father and anointed by the Holy Spirit as the king. This great period of testing, excuse me, this great period of testing came just after the amazing experience of Jesus' coronation. It is true, then, that every great victory brings with it great temptation. We see that in, in the life of our Lord here. Yet, we also need to see the close connection between these two events, Jesus' baptism and his wilderness temptations. At his baptism, the Father had publicly declared to the angelic realm and those watching, but, uh, but also to the angelic realm, that Jesus was his Son, or is his Son. The Father's proclamation would become Satan's point of emphasis. We need to see this connection, that it became his point of emphasis in tempting Jesus in the wilderness. Now, now you may notice that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. You may recall that Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River. His baptism took place just south of the Sea of Galilee and north of the Dead Sea. Then the text tells us in 4.1 that he was driven into the wilderness. Now, it's hard to know the exact location of this wilderness, but the wilderness of Judea is very close geographically. It sets between the Dead Sea and Jerusalem. It, it says it is as hot and barren and desolate as any place you will find on earth. Now, George Adam Smith aptly described it as an area of yellow sand and crumbling limestone. It is an area of contorted strata where the ridges run in all directions as if they are warped and twisted. The hills are, in, are like dust heaps. The limestone is blistered and peeling. The rocks are bare and jagged, and often the ground sounds hollow." End quote. In my trip to Israel a few years ago, almost Every landscape I've seen in other locations is found in Israel, and, and I can tell you that that area that, that's being described is as desolate as any that you will find on earth. This was a, a place, or this is a place even today, of incredible suffering and isolation. My, Mark even alludes to the wild beast that roamed the area. That's Mark 1.13. That fact that there was wild beasts, the fact that Mark brings up, stresses that there was no one around. It was an incredibly lonely, isolated, desolate place. And you can bet this was a place where comfort fled away. There was no comfort to be found here. Now before we, we move on, we can't miss some parallels to previous events in Scripture. In Exodus 13, verses 17 through 18, Yahweh led Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness to the Red Sea. In, in Matthew 2, if you recall, Matthew spoke of how Joseph and Mary fled King Herod and went into Egypt with Jesus. And in Matthew 2.15, Matthew compares Jesus' departure from Egypt to Israel's departure from Egypt. You may recall that. It says, out of Egypt I have called my son. Now you may recall that Yahweh led Israel through the Red Sea and immediately into the wilderness. That's in Exodus, in Exodus 13. And when they were in the wilderness, you may also recall that they began to grumble at Moses and ultimately at Yahweh. And you may remember that they grumbled about two main things. You remember what they were? They were hungry and they were thirsty. Remember that? Have you read Exodus 13? 
Because of their disobedience and lack of trust, Yahweh, if you may recall, caused them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, the parallels should be obvious. Like ancient Israel, Jesus came up out of Egypt, passed through the waters of baptism, if you will, and was tested in the, in, in the wilderness. Israel failed miserably, but Jesus, the ultimate Israelite, will conquer and prove that he is the rightful king. He is Israel's long-awaited Messiah. Now this leads us to the second, Matthew's second distinctive. His time of temptation tied with an old enemy. Tied with an old enemy. Look at your text again in verse, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. He was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, as I said earlier, times of success and great victory are generally followed by great challenges and temptations. Have you seen that in your own life? I know that I have. I can remember graduating from college. I spent you know, five years trying to graduate. I remember getting out of college and you know, I went to work, I had, a, had a, a, what, I, what was a great job, but I remember being so depressed in my life. I mean, it was probably the most depressed that I'd ever been in my life. It was a period of great victory that was followed by a period of great temptation. Many times, many times it's because enemies can see your great victory and it stirs up jealousy with them. Now, in 1 Kings 18, as an example, Elijah came up against the 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. In that amazing account, encounter, the Lord dramatically and, and miraculously proved His power and might through Elijah. And in doing so, He gave powerful and irrefutable evidence that Elijah was His true prophet. But you may recall that, you may recall that Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal to call down fire from their God to consume their sacrifice, uh, their, their, the sacrifice. And of course, they failed to do it because they aren't prophets at all. So Elijah soaked the sacrifice and the wood, and he soaked everything with water. And God sent fire from heaven to completely consume the sacrifice and the wood and, and Elijah, that Elijah had, had soaked with water. All the people saw this incredible display of, of power and they worshipped him. They worshipped God, that is. Then Elijah even pursued the prophets and he slaughtered them. I mean, it was a, an incredible victory for Elijah. Yet right after that, what happened? Jezebel threatened him, right? Jezebel threatened him. And he fainted with fear and he ran like a scared rabbit. He couldn't get out of that place quick enough. Just listen to his words of despair in 1 Kings 19. He says, he says but, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked for himself that he might die. And he said, it is enough now, O Yahweh. Take my life, for I am not better than my father's. You see, Elijah's victory was followed by this time of great temptation. His victory had raised the ire of his enemy Jezebel, and he fled in great fear of her. Israel had a, a similar reaction when God took them out of Egypt. Again, there's a parallel between what happened with Israel coming out of Egypt and, what, and what's going on with our Lord. They stood at the Red Sea and, and with, with Pharaoh hot on their heels, they cried out in, in fear and despair to Yahweh. And they said to Moses, 
It is because there are no, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you take us away to die in the wilderness? What is it that you've done against us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the Lord that we spoke to you, the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than for us to die in the wilderness. So they had this great victory of being led out of Egypt, and all of a sudden, what are they doing? They're complaining. They're complaining. It was a time of great temptation for them. Well, as for Jesus back in Matthew 4, we have to look at this from, his, from the point of view of his humanity. As, as soon as Jesus had experienced the extreme high of being crowned as the king by the Father, he was sent into the wilderness to be tempted by, by Satan, the greatest of all enemies. Luke tells us that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit and that he returned from the Jordan was being led around by the Spirit in, in the wilderness. But the point is, is that he was, being, he was full of the Spirit. You see, Jesus fully understood his divine, his divine mission. It had been attested to by the Father. He was full of the Holy Spirit. And in his humanity, he experienced the deep and abiding presence of the power of God. He was now looking forward to embarking on, on redemptive work that he was sent to do by the Father. And he had waited uh, for many years, for 30 years for this time to come as he grew in, as a man. He had been fully commissioned by the Father to begin his ministry. And it was at that opportune moment that the devil attacked with his full cunning on display. What would Jesus do? Now, we need to take some time to understand what the Bible says about the devil. The Greek word translated devil means accuser or slanderer. In, in Scripture, he's described in several different ways. In John's Gospel, Jesus describes uh, the devil uh, as the ruler of the world. In John 12, he, 12 31, John 14, 30, and in John 16, 11. In 1 Corinthians 4, 4, the Apostle Paul calls him the God of this age. In Ephesians 2.2, he calls him the ruler of the power of the air. Of course, these titles emphasize that he has currently been given by permission, permission by God to rule over this current world, this current world system. The Apostle Peter says that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. He's looking for someone, seeking someone to devour. The Apostle John says that he has sinned from the very beginning. That, he, that, he's, that he's a sinner from the beginning. And Jesus himself says in John 8, 44, that he's a liar and, liar and a murderer. In, John, in Revelation 12, 9, John, John says that he is uh, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan. He's the one who deceives the whole world. In 1 Thess 3, 5, he's called the tempter. Paul describes him as the, the tempter who has tempted uh, the, the Thessalonians. And it's this role that he plays in Matthew 4 as he approaches Jesus in, in the wilderness. He's the tempter. He's tempting Jesus. Now, later we'll see the difference between tempt, the temptation and, and on, on Satan's part, but also testing on, on God's part. But that's a little bit later, later on. Now, we should note here that a lot of folks, maybe a majority of folks in, the, in this world, don't believe that Satan is real. 
They see him as a made-up character meant to scare us into obeying. They see him uh, the way that he was depicted, uh, the satanic forces are depicted in, at the Grammys. They see him as, as the little devil with the red suit, with the pitchfork, with the horns. But I would argue it's clear that the writers of the New Testament and Moses and the prophets believe Satan is real. And I would argue that this account of Jesus' encounter this account of Jesus' encounter with the devil must have come from Jesus himself. I mean, there's nobody else around, right? He was the only one, he was the only one present. So, so Jesus is the one who gave this account, so he believes in him, uh, the, the, or believes that he, he exists. The devil that Jesus faced was, a, was real and personal in every way. And he personally manifested himself to Jesus in the wilderness. And we have this firsthand account from Jesus himself. In the words of John MacArthur, he says, Having been cast out of heaven by the Lord, Satan's full fury ever since has been turned against God and his work. During Jesus' incarnation, that wrath was especially focused in all his intention, intensity, that is, against the Son and against his divine mission of salvation. The devil's single purpose is to frustrate the plan of God and to usurp the place of God. He therefore continually attacks Christ and all who belong to him. He also pursues every effort to keep others from coming to Christ, end quote. We've seen that throughout Scripture. When Adam was created, what happened? The devil came to tempt him, right? And we see that. When, when Jesus was born, what happened? Herod tried to, kill all, kill, to, tried to kill him, right? Why did he do that? He was, after, he, was, he was trying to usurp God's plan. Well, this brings us to the third of Matthew's six distinctives. His time of temptation told of a new Adam. Look at your text in Matthew 4.2. And after he fasted, had fasted for 40 days, 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Now, in looking at this first phrase of this verse, I want to point out that the time frame appears, in, this time frame appears in several places in Scripture. In Genesis chapter 7, God sent the flood upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. That's Genesis 7, 4. In 1 Kings 19:8, Elijah fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. More significantly, in Exodus 24, 18, Moses went up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, I think it's critical, uh, especially critical, critical to see in Exodus 34, 28, that Moses fasted for the 40 days and 40 nights. As I've argued, the 40-year the wandering of Israel in the wilderness connects directly to Jesus' time of temptation in the wilderness. So, now, as we continue studying this text, we'll find several connections to Israel and Moses that, that, don't, that they, they continue, especially as we get into Matthew chapter 5. With that, look back at your text in Matthew 4 too. Notice, Jesus became hungry. He became hungry. Now, this should be fascinating and encouraging. You see, Jesus is human, and Jesus is a man. Jesus is, in fact, 
the second and perfect Adam. Paul affirms this truth in, in Romans 5.17. He says, For if by the transgression of one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So we see that Jesus is the second or the last Adam. Now, theologians discuss Jesus' humanity versus his deity. Obviously, much ink has been spilled over his deity. Heretical groups, such as the Jehovah's Witnesses, deny Jesus' deity. But there's another ditch over here on the other side that's just as problematic. Denying Jesus' humanity is just as heretical as denying his deity. The author of Hebrews is helpful here. He reminds us that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. He is Jesus, the Son of God. He is a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. He has been tempted in all things like we are. But the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4, 14-16, yet without sin. Beloved, let me put it to you this way. If Jesus didn't become human like us, then he would not be able to sympathize with us. Without his humanity, you could say that Jesus would be aloof and would not be able to show us mercy in the time of need. You see, Jesus can be merciful to us because he is God's son. He is God. Yet, we can't miss that he is merciful because he is like us. He is like us. He is shared fully in the human condition. He was tempted in all things like we are. He's tempted in all things like we are. Now, I don't think we should miss the connection here to Adam in Genesis 3. Adam lived in a paradise, did he not? He lived in the paradise of Eden. God had provided him with everything good. God had even came into the garden to walk with Adam, according to Genesis 3.8. You see, there was nothing in the, in the garden to harm them. Yet when Satan tempted Adam in that perfect setting, what happened? He failed. He failed miserably. And then we know that Yahweh God drove Adam into the wilderness of the world. Everything was different for Adam at that point. But here's the profound truth. The profound truth. That's where the second Adam met Satan. He met Satan in a hot, barren, and desolate place. He was with the wild beasts. He had fasted for 40 days and for 40 nights. He he was experiencing great weakness and great hunger. There is no doubt that he was at a low point. And that's when Satan came to him. That's when the devil attacked. This wouldn't be the only attack. We know later in in Matthew 4, we know that it says that he he left him until an opportune time, is is what it says. Wouldn't be the only attack. It was a, but it was a coordinated effort to tempt Jesus at his lowest. Beloved, that's how our enemy attacks us. That's how he does it. He attacks us when we are at our weakest. 
Now that may be just after a great triumph when we're prideful and we've let our guard down. It may accompany a great trial when, when we're questioning God's love for us. But one thing is absolutely certain. Satan will tempt us. He will tempt us. I love the words of J.C. Ryle. He says this, We must not count temptation a strange thing. The disciple is not greater than his master, nor the servant than his Lord. If Satan came to Christ, he will also come to Christians. End quote. We must be ready to face the temptations, the fiery darts of the enemy. If you are a Christian and you haven't faced those temptations, if you are a Christian and you haven't faced those fiery darts, believe me, you will. I think the words of Thomas Watson are, are instructive here. The flesh inclines us more to believe a temptation than a promise. But our main weapon against Satan is the armor of God. That's what Paul says. Paul says he exhorted the church at Ephesus, therefore take up the armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm therefore having girded your loins with truth. Well, next week we're going to see how the Lord modeled this for us. Just listen to the wisdom of J.C. Ryle. The chief weapon we ought to use in resisting Satan is the Bible. Three times the great enemy offered temptations to our Lord. Three times his offer was refused. With a text of Scripture as the reason, it is written. It is written. How the, the Lord faced Satan. This reminds me, I know some of the ladies are memorizing Scripture together. I, I love the fact that you're doing that. I, and I, I hope that you'll continue to hide that Scripture in your heart. I encourage the men to do, as, do that as well. You see, we have a, an enemy who hates us. We need to hide Scripture in our heart. We need to be ready to, to battle with him just like Jesus is, is doing here. Just like Jesus is going to model here as we go forward. Lastly, if you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I beg you, I beg you to repent. To repent of your sins and turn to Him in saving faith. The Bible says that, that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. And you're currently walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. And you are conducting, the Bible says you are conducting yourself according to the lust and desires of your flesh and of your mind. You are chilled by nature children of wrath. Let me put it to you this way. You're on Satan's side. You're not on God's side. If that's you this morning, let me just say this. You have no hope in this world. You have no hope. I pray that you will repent and turn to Christ. He is the merciful God who has experienced every temptation, yet without sin. He has conquered sin and death. Call out to Him in saving faith. Do it now before it's too late. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. Praise you. 
we didn't get too far into this study this morning yet. Lord, I hope that we got a taste. of what's happening here. How our Lord is being attacked by an enemy, our enemy. Father, I pray that as we watch, as we study, that we'll use and see the the model that Christ gives us and how He handles this attack. Father, I pray that as we see Satan attack him, just after the, this triumph of being crowned the king, that we would understand that's what Satan does. He's an opportunist. He's opportunistic. Yet, Lord, we don't have to fear. We don't have to fear. We have nothing to fear. Father, we are to take up our full, the full armor, your armor, the armor of God. It gives us protection. Father, may we take up the word of God. May we be girded with truth. Father, so that we would be protected, even now, even as we walk in this, as we learned last week, Psalm 23, yea, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Father, may we not fear. In Christ's name, amen.